for the first time in my life, I'm doing what I hope I get to be doing for the next 30 years. And I'd never had a job or an experience where I could say that before. Um, I truly love what I do. I think a big part of why I love what I do is who I do it with, um, both our immediate team uh, and then the founders that we work with in our broader core community. Uh, a common theme for me is that people are everything. And so working with people that you love and respect, um, it to me is the most motivating and inspiring thing. And then I will also say, I truly love doing venture in Boston. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Lily Lyman that you just heard. Lily is a general partner at Underscore VC, which is a leading Boston VC firm. Uh, Lily has some great background, uh, which we unpack on this episode, including uh, just prior to Underscore, she was at Facebook. She was helping with global go-to-market initiatives for Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger. Um, she's had experience on both coasts. Uh, dozens of countries around the world, uh, just really a wealth of knowledge. At Underscore, she leads investments on the future of work, AI, machine learning, commerce, and, and a bunch more. So we'll, we'll get into that a bit too, and also her predictions for 2023. And before we move on to the episode, a quick update for the community. In 2023, we're expanding the Boston Speaks Up platform, adding to our distribution channels, and offering more ways for local businesses to support and collaborate with Boston Speaks Up. There are immediate opportunities to sponsor the Boston Speaks Up podcast, where you can become a featured co-brand in our multi-platform distribution that spans social media, Boston Business Journal, Boston O, and the Boston O Beat newsletter, as well as new channels, including the Value Creation Labs blog and newsletter. We encourage folks to contact us at team at valuecreationlabs.co to learn more and discuss the possibilities. Thanks. Now on to the episode. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Lily Lyman of Underscore VC. Hi, Lily. Hi, Zach. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. We're here connected on, on Zoom and I see some cool uh, underscore VC branding in in the background there for for listeners. Why don't you share with them just to kind of ground them in your current role um, a little bit about your role, a little bit about underscore VC types of businesses that you're um, investing in and, and supporting. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for all you're doing for the the Boston tech ecosystem. I think one of the things we need to do is tell our story, and you're an important piece of that. So thanks for thanks for all you do, and thanks for having me. My um, big Quick background, I'm a general partner at Underscore VC. We are an early stage firm based here in Boston. We invest primarily at the seed stage, so um, early in people's journey. Uh, we invest entirely in B2B software. We have a couple of verticals where we focus in the areas of future of work, vertical SaaS, uh, Web3 infrastructure, and fintech. And uh, most importantly, we are what we call a community-driven model to venture. And so the founding hypothesis of the firm was really inspired by open source software, uh, which is uh, centered around how do you get people working together collaboratively on projects to build outsized value, if you will. And so we took that principle uh, and applied it to company building and venture. And so everything we do, um, we engage this large network of uh, experts who are entrepreneurs, they're founders, they're domain experts, and they help us um, find great companies, select great companies, and most importantly, build great companies. So we we try to help founders bring access to the right people at the right time uh, through our community, through through our broader core community. 
Um, and we were based here in Boston. We're, we're very bullish on what's going on here. Uh, but we do invest globally um, beyond just the Boston ecosystem. Nice. That's that's a help, helpful overview. We can, we can maybe even talk a little bit more about um, the core community a bit, because I think when I moved back to Boston from Los Angeles, it was one of the sort of groups that I immediately like discovered digitally uh you know Jenny and that team have done a great job and 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 Devin sort of building the profile of the core community but the core community is is so um strong in just based on how large it is and I think there's I look in a lot of different directions and and folks that I either know or I am you know grateful to to you know newly meet they're like all a lot of roads lead back to the underscore core community um and I'm curious what the last couple of years have been like for like a VC firm that so well leverages like a, a, a community of like minds, how things sort of pros and cons to the pandemic and going virtual, mm -hmm. did it strengthen the community and did it also sort of adjust and in some ways enhance the ability for the community to sort of like virtually plug into and support uh, these early stage investments that Underscore was making? It's such a good question, and it's been a big sort of evolution for us. And actually, one of our core values is actively evolve. Uh, and so uh, this has been an area where we have evolved. You know, pre-pandemic, we, we did a lot of in-person events, um, the peer groups, the dinners, the, the large core summit and things like that. And of course, when the pandemic hit, we had to rethink what does it mean to build and manage and, and create connection across the community virtually. Um, and full credit to, you know, Jenny and, and Devin as well. And we also actually leveraged Goldcast, one of our portfolio companies. A little shout out to them. They helped us um, in this transition. But we were quickly able to pivot to a virtual first um, community. And what that allowed us to do is a couple of things. I do think it allowed us to um, be more inclusive and inclusive of other geographies um, as well. So it, it created that flexibility and dynamism for people to engage no matter where they were in the world. Um, and also particularly to support portfolio companies, no matter where that community member was or where the portfolio company was. And so I think that that's allowed us to um, expand our community and realize that, that we can bring people to add value to portfolio company building regardless of location. I will say, I think that now, you know, we're in a world where we believe hybrids here to stay. And so from a community management perspective, that's become a part of our foundational strategy, which is how can we keep some elements virtual? Because I do think it's inclusive and it allows us to reach other people all over the world. We have some great folks in different parts of the US, some folks internationally, um, who both want to connect with each other and connect with portfolio companies. So we are keeping some elements of it virtual, but we also got a lot of feedback that people miss the, the in-person connections. Um, and what we heard, which was interesting coming out of the pandemic, is that people were really looking for meaningful connections. It wasn't necessarily about volume and being at a conference with 800 people, which is, I think, what we had at our last core summit, but it was around sort of more intimate, more meaningful connectivity. And so that's where we focused a lot of our efforts now as we think about we have peer groups that meet up. So whether it's, you know, marketing leaders or product leaders or engineering leaders meet up on a regular basis um, in terms of how our own portfolio founders meet and connect. Um, we're trying to focus on sort of topical or or sort of deeper, more meaningful connectivity. So I'd say we're now in this hybrid world. Um, it definitely has been an evolution, but I think it's been a net a net positive, um, both for our broader community and how we can engage and include people, but also for our portfolio companies and how they can tap it. Um, and we've also created sort of digital versions in our Slack group, and we have a whole directory on how people can find each other and things like that. So we want to make sure we have sort of different ways of engaging depending on what people are looking to do.
Yeah, well said. And, and the, I'm particularly impressed with the Slack group and how well organized it is and how active it is. Uh, I'm as a member of the Slack group and sort of, I don't turn my notifications off. Like I appreciate kind of getting a sense of like, what kind of jobs and positions are being filled in one thread and what kind of questions founders are asking in terms of what what are the 10 what's a what's a what are some best practice tips in the current climate for raising money right now uh so really good stuff on that end and i guess thinking about our listeners right now we have skew a little more on the younger side and you know okay. things you hear from younger people um i want to be a vc um yeah. and and there's certainly a lot of first time founders there's a lot of like early stage um founders or aspiring founders i think okay. uh you you'll have you you have interesting perspective like i'm, I'm curious as we as we go back in time like i'll want to kind of unpack a bit like at different times in your career like what the things were you wanted to do and the skills that you found mm -hmm. in unlikely places to become a, you know to become a vc um and the importance of you know being a founder, being an operator, and having global experience uh, to be able to sort of see the forest through the trees when you're evaluating these B2B investments that you make. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's sort of like a general kind of setup for I think what could be really will be really valuable, I think, to the community, but certainly, you know, my that that's where a lot of my curiosity lies is sort of in that in that background and experience that you have. Um, and so I guess before we kind of go back in time, just general advice or insight or just comments on Lily Lyman, you know, currently like a general partner at a, at a prominent VC in Boston. Like how does, how does that sound when you hear that? Does it still surprise you sometimes given like the career direct trajectory on and the experiences that you've, you've had was, was VC always on the list of like, I'm going to be a VC one day. You know, it's, uh, it's funny you say that. I feel very grateful to be where I am. Um, but I think most importantly, I think, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm doing what I hope I get to be doing for the next 30 years. And I'd never had a job or an experience where I could say that before. Um, I truly love what I do. I think a big part of why I love what I do is who I do it with, um, both our immediate team uh, and then the founders that we work with in our broader core community. Uh, a common theme for me is that people are everything. And so working with people that you love and respect um, is to me is the most motivating and inspiring thing. And then I will also say, I truly love doing venture in Boston um, specifically. And I think that, and, then, and I wasn't sure about that. You know, I, I, I grew up in New York City. I spent many years out on the West Coast um, and then moved back here over five years ago. And I was a little hesitant of what the Boston tech ecosystem was going to be, to be honest. And we can talk a little more about that. I was afraid it was going to be very old, very white, male, and very healthcare. <laughs> and there's parts of that that are true. Um, but actually, it's way more interesting, dynamic, diverse than I expected. And the other piece that was unexpected to me was how collaborative it is. Um, when I arrived, there were several people, um, folks like Sarah Hodges and Pam Allsworth and, and some others who just really opened their arms to me and welcomed me and helped me meet the right people and, and David Beisel too at NextView. And anyway, there, there was a lot of folks. So I, one of the reasons why I like doing venture in Boston is because, yeah, sometimes we compete on deals and stuff, but I actually think there's more collaboration and there's a little bit of an underdog spirit. And so I think people want Boston to be successful. Um, and so there's there's sort of a collaborative piece to that. So I, I'm a deeply competitive person. We could talk about that and why. Um, but I think if I was in a different ecosystem, <laughs> the competition side of me might, might get the better of me. So <laughs> I feel very privileged to be doing what I'm doing. Um, and it's a testament to 
the people I get to do it with, the founders we get to work with, the community that supports all of this, and then um, you know the co-investors and broader ecosystem here here in Boston it makes it particularly fun and rewarding. So um, that's how I feel about where I am now. I feel feel very lucky uh, in terms of my path here. You know, I, I didn't always have venture. You know, had my sights set on venture, um, but it, in sort of my mid twenties, it became something that I was, I was excited about. And to, to back up a little bit, I, I went to Harvard undergrad, and um, I studied something called social studies, which to everybody else sounds like a sixth grade class. I think it's like you know all the capitals, um, but it's actually an <laughs> interdisciplinary major at Harvard that um, you study a little bit of. Uh, like statistics, economics, philosophy, social theory, and a little bit of sort of why are we the way we are. But my original plan coming out of college was to go into foreign service. Um, I really thought that that was my path. and uh, But I ended up getting a fellowship with an organization called Endeavor, which is an amazing organization. It's a nonprofit that works with entrepreneurs all over the world. Um, and their thesis is that entrepreneurship is the most effective driver of change um, in largely in emerging markets is where it started. And I found myself in Chile, um, originally Santiago, but actually ended up in northern Patagonia, helping helping open up a, a, the new Endeavor office there. Um, and for those who don't know the Endeavor model, the, it's actually kind of similar to VC in some ways, which is you sort of land in an ecosystem, you build out a community of, of people, of entrepreneurs and advisors, and then you work to find the most promising entrepreneurs in that ecosystem. And then you support them with all sorts of access to resources, advisors, consultants, MBAs, VC all this stuff. Um, and so that was kind of my first introduction to the world of entrepreneurship. And it was incredibly inspiring and humbling. And, and so out of that, I did that for about two and a half years. Um, my takeaway was I either want to go be one of those entrepreneurs or I want to go be one of those smart people who can help them and help their businesses thrive, um, sort of the advisor investor role. So um, that kind of changed my path. And that's kind of where venture first came into my 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 eyesight. Um, my takeaway from that was, oh, I got to go learn business if I'm going to do one of those two things. So let me go into consulting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which was a little bit, I don't know if I was misguided. There's some truth to it where I learned a lot of things, but I joined a boutique consulting firm and bought in New York City um, and did learn a lot about market strategy and business plans and managing big clients um, and things like that. So it was a very useful experience, but it was quite far from the entrepreneurial feeling um, that I wanted to be closer to. So I um, applied to business school and got lucky enough to get in my dream school, which was Stanford, um, because of the entrepreneurial ecosystem at heart. I wanted to go out there. So um, went out West. And uh, while I was at Stanford, I spent most of my time focused on entrepreneurship and venture classes. And again, kind of straddling, do I want to be a founder? Do I want to try to get break into venture? Um, I actually ended up starting a, a company while I was out at Stanford on campus, came out of a class at the design school um, in the ag tech space, totally different world, but gave me a little bit of the zero to one uh, founding experience. Happy to talk more about that. Um, but I had been given the advice from several VCs who spent time on Stanford's campus that if you want to go be a VC, you should spend some time operating. Um, and I, we can debate that all day long. I'm not sure there's any one path in the VC. I think you know one of the best VCs I know was a journalist before. Um, and so I, I think there's lots of different different ways ways in. But um, I took that to heart and ended up um, spending time at Facebook um, on the international growth team, which is where I spent a lot of time in a lot of these different countries that you mentioned. And happy to spend more time talking about that. Um, but while I was there, I started doing some angel investing. Um, and so for those listening, I do think sort of finding a way to insert yourself in the startup ecosystem, whether it's 
volunteering at places like Mass Challenge or Techstars or trying to do a little bit of angel investing. Um, I think that could be very helpful. And I got lucky enough to get involved with Yard Ventures, which is Harvard's alumni venture fund, um, and started meeting founders and reviewing decks and um, just kind of fell in love with it. So, um, you know, that's sort of what got me to think about, hey, maybe I should be doing this all the time. Mm. Uh, and so that... You know, I got lucky enough to get introduced to the underscore team when I was moving back to Boston. This was in 2017. Um, and we dated for a little while, if you will, got to know yeah. each other. And um, I fell in love with the team and the community model. It was really different from anything I'd ever seen. Um, and uh, jumped in at the end of 2017. So nice. that was a very long answer to your question. That was a great answer. And it's my path. I've, I've always had the ability, but certainly hosting Boston Speaks Up, I think has enhanced my ability to compartmentalize and track like a really like tight, succinct thread like you just had. A few <laughs> highlights for me. I'm stoked to hear you say that you're finally like you're finally doing something that you're going to be doing for the next 30 years. Like that's it's rare this day and age. Uh, there's a lot of career kind of pivots um, and maneuvers that just in general people are making like generationally speaking, like is it to sort of get up and find that sort of like that right happiness quotient sort of professionally preferred um, personally. So that's super cool. Um, I, I feel uh, sim similar. I, I don't know how long the the dating and the courtship was, um, mm -hmm. you know, underscore in yourself, but I think in general, like it's almost like a full, a full-term pregnancy, nine, 10 months, uh, like I, as some of the, the best relationships in business that I um, have taken my time to sort of see through the right way. They yeah. tend to be almost a year, like nine, 10, yeah. but, but interesting too, in particular, like we joke, cause it's like, it, it was almost like a full-term pregnancy. It's about that 10 month mark. Like yeah. if you're, if you're talking about making a big career move or those don't have to happen so quickly. And oftentimes I've found the, the ones that took a lot more time where you did a bit more dating, as you put it, uh, it also sort of like re reaffirms like decision you are or not, you know, going, you know, ultimately going to make. Totally. I think that's, I think that's a great analogy. And it's funny that you use that one because I actually was pregnant when I was interviewing with underscore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, we, and so at the time, I don't know, I was doing red eyes back and forth to California. I was still living out there um, to go meet the team. And, and we did, it was, a, it was almost a five month, at least five month process. Um, and you know, the team was amazing. I joined underscore six and a half months pregnant with my first child. So I was moving cities, new industry, new job, you know, all, all the new things um, all at one time. So that's cool. A whole other sort of advice yeah. on that. But um, anyway, there's never a perfect time, but it just felt right to your point. You know, you get yeah. a certain spot and it, it felt like the right thing. So um, I've never looked back. I'm very nice. grateful. Well, let, let's talk. I want to talk. I want to actually talk a little bit more about just your your childhood a bit i want to kind of paint that picture and then and then when we graduate back up to you sort of like going to harvard undergrad like that first first career experiences you had and like going out to stanford i I do want to double click on that ag tech startup and kind of hear about a what it was and b like what it taught you right. um but just talk like where new york did you grow up in the city like where you grew up in new york city like what was it what was that like? And you mentioned that it, you may not have been introduced to entrepreneurship till later in life. So I'm curious, like, what did your parents do? And like, what was, you know, what kind of careers and, and paths did you see for yourself as you were sort of like maturing in New York City? Yeah, it's a good, good question. So yeah, I grew up in, 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 New, York, in New York City in Manhattan. Um, 
uh, which always sort of surprises people, I guess. I don't know for better or worse. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, born I, I think it's cool. I feel like there's like street cred to that. Cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I always thought it was people Yeah, you're it. a city slicker. You're like a real, all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love New York. It gives me so much energy. Um, mm. Both my parents are from the, the Boston area. So I have Boston roots. My whole extended nice. family is here. So, and my husband's from here. So, so deep ties here. Um, and actually three out of my four, actually four of my five siblings are here. Um, so big, big Boston, but born and raised in New York City. Um, I was, I, I am the second out of four kids. Um, so big family and uh, we're all very close in age. And I think the result of that is there was just always a lot going on. Um, I was always busy, always people staying over and, you know, people, anyway, it's just, I feel like our house was sort of a revolving doors of a lot of people all the time. So I think that got me a little bit comfortable with chaos mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and also just sort of being used to being adaptable and go with the flow as the, as the middle child, you know, I like to think I never got my way, but it made me sort of realize what matters, what not, and, and figure out how to go with the flow. Um, both my parents are super high energy, high activity people. So we just, we always were, we're doing a lot of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, in particular, both my parents, my mom in particular is uh, one of her superpowers. And it's something I've reflected on as I think about venture, but one of my mom's superpowers is building and managing relationships and friendships. She's very, very good at it. She's a very social human. Um, but she's the type of person that will drive 10 hours overnight to show up for a friend if they need her, you know, if there's the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I think it instilled to me the values of, of, of how important people and relationships are. And I think that that's, as I reflect sort of a, what I love about venture and sort of my approach to it. I think that that's where a lot of that came from. Um, the other sort of defining thing is in my childhood is I was a very serious gymnast um, from a very early age. My dream at the time was to be an Olympic gymnast. Cool. And, um, you know, so I think I, I characterize my childhood as kind of work hard, play hard. I worked pretty hard for a young age. I sort of look back sometimes and I was like, I was eight when I was doing that. You know, it's like three hours of training a day. U.S. women's gymnastics, I remember like as a child, like it, how huge it was and how it, it just, huge. it, it like, was a part of the zeitgeist. And as a, I remember as a seven, eight, nine year old boy, just like being like, wow, these young women for the U.S. gymnastics team were like, they were stars. Total stars. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, she was my hero yeah. um, in the 96 Olympics. Not to Right. Myself, yeah, no, that's but... what I picture that mid-90s Olympics. Yeah, I was like 11 yeah. years old. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, same. Uh, so that was kind of my dream. So I, I like I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast. Cool. That, was, that was where I wanted to go. And it's funny because my partner Richard actually was an Olympic skier. So he fulfilled oh, the childhood <laughs> athletic dream I, I'd have done. Um, and around ninth grade, my parents, you know, I sort of had to make the choice. Do I move to Texas and train and or do I stay in school? And we decided right. that I should stay in school. Um, but anyway, so that was that was a little bit of my orientation. It was it was pretty sports oriented and and um and people oriented. Um yeah. And so in terms of careers, you know, it's so silly, but <laughs> the first career I remember wanting was to be an astronaut. And it's because I wanted to have no gravity so that I could be better gymnastics. <laughs> oh, wow. That's the one. Oh, that's cool. Like, totally it, I mean, embarrassing it, astronaut, like, no, very yeah. aspirational, but also, but very specifically, you were just very looking to gain reasons. gymnast edge. Yeah. So I guess that's pretty focused. It's, it's sort of embarrassing, but... I, that's the first one I remember. And then the other sort of career aspiration was, um, I actually really wanted to be a teacher. And I yeah, think same. So- Parts of me that that love that, and you know, we're lucky enough at our firm to spend a lot of time at some of the innovation hubs and campuses here in Boston, at Harvard and at MIT and Northeastern and Babson and all the wonderful places, BU. Um, and so, you know, I really love 
I love teaching. I love being around that learning environment. Um, think myself cool. as a lifelong learner. So maybe yeah. someday. Question on that. It was same. It, it, it's it's a it's an interesting career path to choose because it does have financial implications on your life. Um, but it's one that is an interesting one that if you make the right like good decisions over time, your your VC career over the next 30 years, you could start to become like an adjunct professor somewhere or get involved in there's a lot of really unique modern um complementary education sort of solutions propping up at different you know levels and and it's it, you know the entrepreneur in residence has become like a flagship thing at most schools and and like yeah. adjunct professors like i've done i've done quite a bit of teaching at endicott college like because it's like in my community here in beverly and i can efficiently like go and give back and work with kids and it's it's sort of um there's a lot of I, you know I'm, I'm eager to see like how the next 10, 15 years unfold and in part because it sounds like we are the same age. Our kids will all be coming of age and and thinking of whatever college may be, uh, you know, sort of 10, 15 years from now. And and there's, I think, being having some level of um, in, natural interest in this realm, I think for folks like us, I think that we may or may not participate in. I think it's also just going to make us sharper in terms of like, what is, what is available to our, to our children? And like, what does, what does education really look like? And I'm just curious, like, let's just go off on that. If you want to build off that tangent with me a little bit, like, how do you, how do you, what do you envision, you know, 15 years from now and, and how do or don't you see, um, opportunities for yourself to still be Lily Lyman, the VC and Lily Lyman, the parent, but also potentially like the sort of part-time, like modern mm-hmm. educator. It's a cool, it's a <laughs> cool question. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what it'll look like 15 years from now, but I think, you know, my hope, you know, I look at my partner, Michael, who, who is an entrepreneur residence or an executive in residence at Harvard and, and it's built something pretty cool with my other teammate, Sua and the rock center called VC pathways, yeah. um, which is all about how do you sort of blow up the black box of venture, kind of like one of the things we're trying to do now, particularly for young people who are thinking about it as a career. And, um, he's sort of co-innovating with, with the rock center and, and HBS to, to do that and build that. So, you know, I think my hope is that down the road and, you know, I support on certain things and, and our whole team gets involved on, on campus. You know, we're pretty involved with um, Harvard iLab anyway and MIT Sandbox um, and the team over there who's incredible. So um, I'm already feeling some of the intersections and the opportunity to get to think about education and particularly entrepreneurship education and venture. Actually, one of the projects that I worked on related to this education question um, when I was down in Chile. So I lived in Chile for, for a couple of years with Endeavor. And one of the things that we built was um, an entrepreneurship education program, which is sort of how do you teach the value, like the both the hard skills and the soft skills of what is entrepreneurship to high school kids um, in the public schools down there. And it was a cool thing to sort of reflect on and think about how do you extract those things and codify them and then teach them. And it's one of the things I think sometimes we take for granted here in the U.S. is that we have a very entrepreneurial culture. Like lemonade stands is kind of a normal thing that a lot of kids in the U.S. do. But that in of itself is that's an entrepreneurial nature um, that that some a lot of cultures don't have. Um and so anyway, we built this interesting program and it ended up getting adopted by the Chilean national education system and being rolled out across high schools. Um, and I worked with this amazing woman, Tina Sillig at Stanford, who, who does something, um, she has a whole program on sort of entrepreneurship education. So That's I think cool. some of the, 
I've, I've been interested in for 17 yeah. years and, and hope to continue to find ways for it to, to be, you know, an intersection in, in what I do. And part of the reason, you know, one of the things I love that, that underscores, we have a whole program called Startup Secrets, which my incredible teammate Claire Crather runs. Um, and it's it's essentially sort of creating content largely from our founders or members of our core community who are experts in certain things, whether it's pricing and packaging or your go-to-market strategy or hiring your first marketer or some of the basic business building things that we see come up a lot. And and so, you know, I look at sort of as founders are building their companies, there's so many things that you shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel on. So any role that we can play in capturing some of the knowledge that's already been figured out and packaging it and making it accessible to everybody. Um, and it is, it's out on our website and anybody can can read that content. Um, that those are some of the things that we, you know, it's a, it's, again, it's kind of part of our value system of how can we share this and make it open source, if you will, make it really openly available. So um, that's a piece of the underscore strategy that that I gravitated with naturally as well. That's cool. The, the program that you did in Chile is really neat. I, see, a lot of my interest is in sort of like youth development, like middle school and high school. And like one of my cousins have been supporting him in growing his future fortune builders initiative where he like he's actually gone to like new york city public schools he's gone to some public schools around the us but actually more so in south america and africa like the whole like the country of jamaica has embraced him and made the future fortune builders program like part it's a financial literacy sort of just multi-day but one sort of one week or weekend sort of let's teach kids about credit and 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 uh interest rates and compound interest and sort of like just like simple like 100 200 level like savings tips for uh young people like create like wealth you know opportunities for themselves like as they you know get out into the world uh so i think a lot of education initiatives that are sort of like like that's very complementary to sort of like the standard kind of education that that kids get so it it seems that there's an opportunity for you know these disparate kind of um programs in boston to kind of find a community that kind of stitches them together and so i'll be that that's one of my sort of i guess an intention of mine is to go back 84 episodes and cherry pick some of these like programs like future um, fortune builders and tech for hood and all these little you know out here in lawrence and there and and find a way that maybe there's like this this layer of 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 connectivity that maybe a community like the core community can sort of catalyze a bit and and give and almost be a bit of a platform for um, bringing to other you know communities in the Commonwealth and maybe beyond um, just to kind of help our youth get all the types of support um, in those like fringe cases that they would otherwise mm -hmm. be looked at these days where it's like oh no yeah we're we're not going to cover financial education in high school. Really? That's wild. Like, and, it, and the numbers on that are really wild. So that's just a particular area where it's like, I think there's some like low hanging fruit, um, especially for, you know, for, for public schools to just kind of partner with the private sector. Totally. I think that, I, I think it's so powerful. And I think equipping people with this type of skill set, I think particularly if you look at some of the rates of lack of enrollment in college um, and higher enrollment in vocational schools. I think some of these tangible skills um, that you'll use no matter what you do in life, but particularly if you're interested in entrepreneurship, uh, the sooner that we can introduce them to kids in a way that's palatable to them, the better off they're, they're, they will be set. Um, that's one of the things that I love about the Northeastern model. I think the co-op model is so yeah. cool. 
um, yeah. and brilliant. And, and we've worked with a lot of great co-ops um, at Underscore and, and just they're incredible, yeah. um, incredibly smart, talented, kind, wonderful humans and just, you know, graduate with so much more experience and and presence and, and um, vision on what they want to do. So anyway, yeah. I think to the extent that you can create those opportunities and if you, you know, if you have ideas on how to bring some of these resources together and curate them and cross pollinate, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, yeah. Hack diversity is incredible work. Oh, and, yeah. Um, Brazilian and, coders. Yeah. yeah. Brazilian coders is yeah. incredible. Certain yeah. one around girls who, in, one called girls who invest. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of cool, cool things out there. And to the extent that we can cross pollinate and um, get leverage across that collaboration, through a community approach, if yeah. you will. Um, yeah. I think there's huge potential there. So that would be awesome. For sure. Uh, let's So let's talk a little bit about graduating high school and like what was on the horizon for you, like ultimately decision to go, like, like you get into Harvard, I feel like the decision is almost made. It's like, okay, I'm going to Harvard, but going to Harvard and like what you wanted to study there. Um, Cause I'm kind of curious, like I do want to like unpack the endeavor path yeah. you were on and like some of the experiences that that afforded you but that obviously began with the decision you made as a you know young adult um you know choosing where to go to school and what to study yeah yeah so when i was graduating high school i actually did something a little bit unconventional at the time um which was i decided to take a year off or oh how european of you I know, right? It took a gap year. I know. I didn't even know what that was until I studied abroad junior year of college. And I'm like, I, I totally could see this benefiting me, gaining perspective before I make a decision that is setting me on a path for the rest of my life. I, that was that was where I landed. And I kind of forget where I first got the idea because it was pretty unusual at the time for yeah. America. I know the, the British do it a lot. Um, but I decided to defer Harvard a year. Um in order to do that. And actually I was, I was going to play lacrosse in college um, and ended up doing that, but it, that decision sidetracked that plane a little bit. My coach was not that excited that I wanted to do that, but yeah. I wanted to do it. So um ended up living abroad in New Zealand and I worked in DC for a while. And I, I worked in Europe, um, actually worked on the Athens Olympics as a volunteer. Anyway, I just did all sorts cool. of cool international things during that year. And it, I think it changed my path in a couple of ways in terms of my international interest and just sort of recognizing what a big wide world there is out there and how can you, you know, build things that can impact it. And, and so I think that that, that informed sort of how I ended up at Endeavor, to your point, sort of before I even went to college. Um, I think it helped me appreciate college and all the people I was meeting there, the incredible content and the things that I was learning and things I had access to. So again, I think I've always been sort of a work hard, play hard. Um, you know, I worked, I think I worked harder in college because I took that year and, and was able to sort of get perspective on what is the value of being there. Um, and uh, so that sort of, that set me on that path to study social studies, which again, sounds like a silly name, but it's actually a fascinating major um, where you get to sort of think about the intersection of all these different things. And I think that's kind of a theme for me personally, is I'm um, multidisciplinary, if you will, and, and particularly curious about why humans are the way they are and sort of why systems are the way they are, why societies are the way they are. Um, and I think my thesis sort of started coming into Harvard and then out of Endeavor and out of my consulting days was that I do believe that entrepreneurship is the best way to drive change in the world. Um, I'd say I'm impact oriented in that way, which is, and I think it's these, you know, the, the technology, like technological innovation and what founders can do with that to change the way industries work and in the process, build big companies that employ people and, mm -hmm. and help 
pretty well. So I think it's a multi-pronged approach, but to me, that's how you really drive change is sort of by applying these technologies to change the way things get done. So um, I think that started for me coming out of high school and sort of continued on um, from my journey from there in terms of my, my why, why do I, why do I think this matters? And I think venture is an important piece of that puzzle, um, which is sort of part of my why of, why I think it's a worthwhile way to spend your time in life. Yeah, that's cool. I, I I too agree with entrepreneurship being sort of the channel through which we can create the most change um, at a pace that in some markets it's in particularly needed, like climate tech, which is why I love that we're the state that is home to the biggest climate tech incubator in the country with Greentown Labs. Uh, so talk a bit about graduating from Harvard and what kind of job prospects there were and like what the pathways, what, like what were those pathway options for you? Yeah. Um, I was fortunate in that, you know, while I was in college, I had spent time, I worked at the council on foreign relations. I'd lived in Mexico city working for a microfinance bank. I was sort of stuck on this international development thread, if you will. I wrote my thesis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and spent some time in Israel and Palestine. So while I was in college, got it, I never studied abroad. Actually, at Harvard, it wasn't a big thing to study abroad at the time. Um, and it was interesting. Harvard had very little about entrepreneurship when I was on campus. It's amazing to see how much has changed. And I guess in my head, I'm younger than I am. So it's been a while. But um, it's just been amazing to see the change on campus in terms of how much time, attention, groups, resources, the iLabs, the new engineering school. I mean, none of that yeah. stuff was there when yeah. I was there. But um, so when I was looking, when I was graduating, I knew I wanted to spend time abroad. Um, Princeton had this program called Princeton Latin America. So I applied to it. I was actually the first non-Princeton person to get the fellowship. It's a scholarship program, basically. Cool. Um, and um, and then I got placed with Endeavor. And yeah. it was sort of, it's, you know, it was one of my choices and I got matched with it. And I arrived in Santiago expecting to live there. And um, my boss at the time said, hey, you know, we're opening up a new office in Patagonia. Do you want to go? And I, was, I was there for an adventure anyway. I'm a big believer in sort of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. That's something that I think my dad always instilled in me. He, one time he literally sort of drew a little bullseye and said, this is your comfort zone. This is outside your comfort get zone. Get outside and like, it. Get outside. And here's nice. the value of getting outside of it. So I have that vision in my head. That's cool. Um, I'm going to try. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use that one. Yeah. It's stuck with me. I think it's nice. been 30 years. Simple and effective. <laughs> Simple and effective, but I'm a believer of like, you know what, why not go outside your comfort zone? You learn something. Um, anyway, so I moved down to Northern Patagonia and I was one of the only Americans there, barely spoke Spanish, but figured it out. Um, How'd your Spanish get by the end of it? Did it, did it make some improvements? Vastly improved. <laughs> yeah. Probably most improved award. Um, I went from sort of, you know, where's the bathroom to being able to conduct business in Spanish, which cool. I still, I used at my time at Facebook. Too, so I can still, I can still get my, I can still work, make my way yeah. through as needed. Nice. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up in, in Chile and, and, and with Endeavor. Then I spent some time with the Endeavor New York office and, and then I went on from there. Nice. Cool. So, uh, so that Endeavor experience is, is, is interesting and sort of, I guess you had, you mentioned this earlier, you identified, all right, I want to go back to business school. I think at this point you're now in your mid twenties and you did have venture on the was was on the horizon for you. You mentioned some advice you got about we'll go be an operator, you know. Yeah. So so talk a bit about Stanford, the ag tech startup, and sort of 
And and then ultimately, like I think we go from there, like talking a bit about the experience that you went and got it at Facebook. But I'm that very polar opposite, like very advantageous experiences. Single, you know, first time founder entrepreneur, and then working for one of the one of the biggest uh, global organizations in the world. Yeah. Um, so I came into Stanford with some hypotheses and I kind of, this is my general advice for people going to business school and should you go, should you not? Um, I think if you have some hypotheses about, if you're not sure what you want for your next career move, um, or if you do know, and you know, you need to make a pivot and it'd be hard to do that without some intermittent thing like business school. I do think an MBA um, can be worth it from a career trajectory perspective. I also just think it's an incredible way to build your network. That's kind of what you really pay for. Um, and that network will serve you for the rest of your career, in my opinion. So I'm I'm generally a believer in it, unless you happen to be in the exact job that you would want on the other side of it. Um, yeah. So that is my job. But anyway, I came into it with a series of hypotheses of like, you know, mm-hmm. do I, am I interested in starting, a, you know, starting a company or being at an early stage company? Do I like operating? Um, and then, you know, would VC be a fit? Those were kind of three of my hypotheses that I wanted to test. And then I use different ways, whether it's classes or internships or talking to professors, talking to practitioners like VCs um, while I was out there, used all every opportunity I could to kind of test those hypotheses and understand which might be a good fit for me. Um, and so the the startup actually was kind of by accident. It was through a class I took at the at the D school, and we were doing a project with Colombian coffee farmers, and um, we stumbled upon some interesting both technology and and process to extract part of the coffee fruit, which typically wasn't used. Um, and okay. it was super high in antioxidants, high in caffeine. It's just sort of this, like magical ingredient that nobody was doing anything mm-hmm. with. Um, and so we ended up partnering with some folks there, and. Um, building a company around it. it was myself and I had three co-founders um and so we worked on it while we were in school and I will say working on a startup while you're in school uh is awesome because everything you learn you sort of apply directly yeah. to what you're building and it made it a lot more tangible so you know we we're looking best you know marketing things and I was like applying it right away I was looking financial models I was applying it right away um and so I think I learned more and took more out of my classes because I was able to apply them to the startups that we were working on and we did all the pitch competitions on campus and all that stuff so it was just sort of a cool way to take advantage of an experience out there um uh, my partner and I ended up doing it for a while after we graduated, which was kind of a scary decision to make, um, yeah. to pursue it. And, um, but we did, and it was, um, you know, it was really challenging. I think I learned a lot about the zero to one startup experience. Um, it was lonely at times. It was super hard. I wasn't sure if we sort of had a good enough idea and is it worth pursuing? Should we not? Should we? Um, and then ultimately, you know, we we took a hard look at ourselves and said, is this what we want to be spending the next 10 years of our life on? Recognizing that to build a big company takes that. And a, an important learning for me was around founder market fit, which I think mm. is something that not everybody talks about. But um, I did not have founder market fit with the with the startup that we were building. It was in the CPG space and ag tech. And, um, you know, I really was missing some of the B2B software <laughs> things that I originally had been interested in. And so, um, so we ended up selling off part of the business and, and, and winding the rest of it down and, um, and moving on. But that was, I mean, it was super hard yeah. uh, on all different levels, but I'm, I'm glad because I, I learned a lot that I need to, not everybody needs to have founder market fit. Mm-hmm. Some people get motivated enough just by building a business, although I'm not totally convinced that will sustain you through all the hard times that you need to go through to build something meaningful. But for me, I definitely need to care enough about what I'm building mm-hmm. um, in order to get through the the hard stuff. So interesting. 
so that was that experience. It was I learned a lot, and and um, I'm glad I went through it. I think it gives me some empathy for the zero to one stuff that a lot of the founders we work with go through. Um, and uh, anyway, but it, but in parallel, as you said, I sort of was pursuing two different paths, so like yeah. really early stage stuff, and then I you know ended up interning, and then ultimately going to Facebook, um, which at the time was about five thousand people, so it was still kind of small. Uh, yeah. Well, not small, it was big, but not as big as it is now. Yeah. Um, what year was this when you were kind of going and joining Facebook? Um, I started in around 2013. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty that's on the early side. And 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 was part of the rationale the like that you had an interest, but a, like you wanted more experienced sort of like products and like and did you go into Facebook with sort of like a like a focus on like a B2B role at Facebook? And and is it was it like did you seek out and get excited about the type of role and the experience that that role would give you. So I got lucky. So the short answer is yes. Um, I think you know I, I ended up on a team that was working on the emerging market and international growth for the company, and so it was I was technically part of the growth org. And what we were working on specifically was how do we adopt Facebook's products for um, either low connectivity environments or like essentially emerging market environments. And we ended up working on a project that would spend a lot of time working with mobile operators and telecoms um, and setting up big deals with them to launch um, these huge projects that could go to all depth. But if essentially around how do you get people access to the internet was the project that we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it ended up kind of being like a B2B enterprise go-to-market motion, which mm-hmm. entering Facebook, you didn't you don't necessarily think is, a, is the core part of the strategy, but the group that we were working on that's essentially what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and the thing that was motivating is that, you know, I think the broader mission, I mean, Facebook was at an interesting point in its growth, which is like, if you think about long-term growth for Facebook, it had hit a point where ultimately their growth curve was going to be capped by how many people have access to the internet, yeah. which is kind of an interesting growth limiter. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a pretty big problem. And yeah. so we were spending time thinking about, okay, well, what are the, why, why, what are the things that inhibit people having access to the internet and what is Facebook well positioned to do about it? Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a blend of infrastructure of the cost of data, mm-hmm. which in some places was really expensive. And then also like education and sort mm-hmm. of awareness of why do I need the internet? What can I do for me? And yeah. Facebook has such a strong brand and WhatsApp as well, um, that it was a helpful way to pull people into using the internet. So that's yeah. what we work on. That's so interesting. It's, it's almost like a startup within Facebook. Yeah. To this problem. As someone who is working in an interesting capacity with Facebook in 2013, 2014, um, I totally get like the B2B kind of growth pockets that existed to help Facebook grow. So for example, like I, I was out in LA, we, we moved out like 2012 into 2013. By 20, by 2014, I was working with the Annenberg Foundation. Oh, yeah. uh, and are you familiar with like explore.org yeah. biggest live nature cam network in the world it's part of the philanthropic um initiatives of the annenberg foundation and what was interesting is by a bit after y'all were y- your team was kind of focusing on that like facebook was also like looking at the market looking at youtube looking at this whole over the top video movement that is like so like now you're seeing the rebundling of connected tv in 2022 right yeah. and you're seeing mm-hmm. shows that were you know dominant youtube shows be critical channels and free ad supported tv lineups on hulu and the roku channel and vizio watch free so at the time facebook was like well one of the things we need to do to increase engagement and set ourselves for the future is be a video platform but how do we condition folks that 
this is a video platform and how do we introduce like quality content quality video content in people's feeds and so yeah. i don't know if you if you like the, the there was a really lucrative um b2b media partner program going on for at least like 18 months for like going live certain number of times a day a month i remember it was over a year and explore.org was one of the biggest partners yeah i mean i, I like I, I it's probably you know enough times passed for me to say like it was almost like a hundred grand a month for like and it was just feeding the organization. It was a nonprofit to go and create all these extra cams and do more polar bear cams here and more hummingbird cams there, whatever. But it was really interesting that it was simply for turning the switch on on Facebook Live and letting those those quality cameras rip. It was just that was a big B two B strategy. It was just finding yeah. these 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 media partners to just go live. And I feel like that was a linchpin to a lot of the growth that Facebook experienced in the back half of the 2010s, really. Yeah, it's exactly right. That is so funny. What a small connection. Yeah. It is, uh, it's, it's, it, I mean, the amount of stuff going on at that company, but, it, but it, I remember that. And the video stuff was a big part of our conversations with mobile operators yeah. and telcos. And what's interesting is actually sort of by accident, a lot of what we ended up doing is these, these operators would pull us in as their partner to help them think about their digital transformation, yeah. which, I didn't know what that was beforehand, but then right. I learned a lot about yeah. it because we sort of became an integral part of their strategy around how do they communicate with their customers and their customer experience management. Yeah. Um, how do they think about data and yeah. managing their own data systems and then integrating it with people and things like that in, in order to do other types of projects. So a lot of the stuff that I now end up investing in from a vertical SaaS digital transformation perspective, um, I think I got my initial reps on what are those challenges? What are the opportunities, at least in the telecom space? But it ends up applying, I think, to a lot of big sort of older industries that are trying to um, catalyze their transformation. Uh, that's where I got a lot of the sort of reps on that on that side of things. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I want to talk now a bit about sort of the migration from Facebook to eventually and ultimately to underscore and and some of what you're up yeah. to today. One thing that yeah. you mentioned in the pre-podcast questionnaire that will you know eventually come up with this episode is sort of your biggest challenge to date. I don't know if it's a millennial thing as it sounds like we're like the same exact age, but so many of my successful millennial friends all like I, we keep we keep each other honest my my brain trust and I about imposter syndrome and just like still like still this still. day like it's it, i'm just curious can you talk about it a bit like how how you have faced it and how it, it, it for me it's kind of omnipresent like it just and, and you mentioned you know your dad drew that circle and he said you know this is comfort this out here is is being uncomfortable and i think as someone like you that has embraced things and tr and gone and well, i'll put myself in situations i'm in, unfamiliar with and I'll have a level of humility and confidence and try to get that right to approach it. Cause I understand like some naivete is okay. If, if you go in things with the right mindset, um, but then you start to find success and you start to have this like imposter syndrome sort of mindset, which I think at times can be embraced in the silver lining being like, you're not too overconfident. Um, but also can be a bit of an inhibitor for maybe a path that you're on that maybe you're just, you're just seeing things differently and, and freshly. So that's me riffing a little bit on imposter syndrome. Yeah. It's something that is on my, it, it comes into my world a lot. It's something I discuss with my brain trust a lot. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's been an evolution um, throughout my career, I guess. Um, 
it's interesting. It's funny. I think, you know, there's been different sort of moments that have helped me overcome pieces of it at different times. Um, so maybe I'll speak to those a little bit, but it, yeah. I think it's easy just to, maybe it is a millennial thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I think there are a couple of pivotal things for me. One was actually going to business school was helpful because I, you know, before business school, I was sort of intimidated by a certain genre of people. There was sort of the, the finance bros and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And I was like, well, I don't know that stuff. I haven't learned it. You know, that mm-hmm. must be really hard. And, you know, I don't know if I could do that. And, you know, then I sat in finance class and learned about the concepts and figured it out. And I was like, oh, I can figure that out. Yep. And like, yeah, they're using fancy jargon. Now I know what that means. And it's like not that confusing. So I'm not going to let that intimidate me um, anymore. And that was sort of an important thing for me to demystify it and kind of you know, certain characters like to talk with a lot of confidence and 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 overzealous and sort of I'm so important, I'm so smart. But I don't know, most things you can figure out. And yeah. and and I sort of have this belief of um and as my lacrosse coach in college had this saying called find a way. And she was referring to like yeah. you're at the end of the game, you're super tired, like dig in, find a way to finish the game. Right. But it's 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 always stuck with me um because find a way. You'll find a way to figure it out. whatever thing you're trying to do. And yeah, there's certain things I probably can't figure out, but you know, I probably could for most things that are on my plate in terms of trying to navigate and new challenges and new things. Like I sort of have learned to believe that I can find a way. And luckily it's usually with other people who are really smart and smarter than me and I can figure out how to work with them to do it. But I guess that's one of the things that I've tried to have be sort of an underlying mantra to overachieve. I mean, overcome some of this imposter syndrome, which is, you know, A, nobody else has it all figured out, even though they might sound like they do and they talk like they do and speak with a certain tone that makes you think they do, but most people don't really know either. Yeah. Um, or they certainly don't have any secret capabilities that that you don't have that you can't sort of figure out. So that, that was one important thing to me. Um, and then the other important piece, which I wish I had learned a little bit earlier, but it, it sort of started in business school um, and then, you know, continued, I think, at my time at Facebook, where I was pretty different than most of my team. I was I was one of very few women on a 70-person team. Um, a lot of my team had 20 years of experience with telcos and mobile operators um, or emerging market operators in particular. So anyway, we were sort of this funny team of profiles and sometimes it could be intimidating, but I think what I learned is that I had certain strengths that like natural strengths that some of my teammates didn't have. Um, and so I learned to, instead of trying to cover those up and try to have the same strengths that everybody else seemed to have, um, I learned to embrace them as mm-hmm. my superpower and that that can actually be a really effective way to get things done and um, and an important asset or compliment on a team. Mm-hmm. So I think, and I've heard this from somebody, which is sort of your 20s, you're trying to figure out what you're good at and you're bad at. Your 30s, you're trying to spend time, you know, honing your strengths and kind of covering up for your weaknesses or sort of compensating for your weaknesses. And I've been told, not there yet, but in your 40s, you kind of just lean into your strengths hard. Yeah. <laughs> like forget the weaknesses. Somebody <laughs> else can do that stuff. Like lean into your strengths. Yeah. Um, and so I wish I had sort of accelerated that a little bit mm-hmm. earlier, but that was an important learning. And it's still something I carried with me now in terms of my approach to venture, our approach to building underscores a firm, how I work with my partners. Um, 
you know, I think it's easy to get intimidated by what you don't know. But the fun thing about venture is there's always gonna be stuff you don't know. Everything changes. I understand why people do this for decades because it's always different. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been doing this for five years and the environment has changed three times in that time period, like massively yeah. changed, you know, in a very significant way. Um, companies change, industries change, technologies change, like everything's changing. So you can't possibly know everything or be prepared for every situation. So I, I increasingly just try to sort of give myself credit for what I do know, um, have more confidence in what I know I'm good at. Yes, I try to compensate for the stuff I'm not, but more importantly, I try to find people who are better at it than me and we just sandwich us together and yeah. together we're a good package. Um, I feel very lucky in my partnership in that because we we are sort of these puzzle pieces that complement each other. So that was kind of a long answer to your question. I don't have a perfect answer, but I think figuring out what you're really good at and trying to lean into that work with really good people who compliment you um, mm-hmm. and maybe compensate for some of the stuff that you're not great at and not getting intimidated by other people. Nobody really has it figured out and you can always find a way yeah. to figure out what you need to figure out. That's one of my favorite things about what you said is, is like, sometimes I'll say like, everyone's faking it till they make it. That's what I yeah. tell myself. Like we're all yeah. faking it. Yeah. There's very few and, people who aren't. <laughs> yeah. And you know, even when you're confident about certain details of something, you can always know more. Um, you know, we can always be a better expert than the, than the current level of expertise that we have on something. And then there's also just super rewarding when you do those things that are like net new challenges for yourself. Like even like a personal challenge, like I, I was always a soccer player, like part of the, re- like it, it, but I'm not a soccer coach, but I chose to, I want to coach my daughter. And like, honestly, like the first I've coached a couple seasons now, like that I even had imposter syndrome then because I'm like, hey, like, I, yeah, I played soccer, but like, I, I know how to coach and I'm coaching like five year olds. Um, yes. So it's it's very and it's just been some of the most re- but some of the most rewarding experience of like creating value creation labs, like tr- like building this consultancy. I'm, like the, the reward that comes out of doing those things, you know, net new things, those net new challenges. Uh, I think those are what kind of have like those like exponential kind of growth factors on them for us as individuals. So, you know, it's back to your, back to your dad with the circle and the dot. I mean, it's that it's simple. Funny, the comfort zone graphic is really guiding me life. <laughs> that's really it. We might have to do a custom social asset for this campaign. That's just that simple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's talk a bit about things you're excited about today at Underscore. They can be like initiatives for the company. I'm curious, like your outlook heading into 2023 in terms of like, markets of sort of b2b SaaS that are particularly um i think set up perhaps to do well in this in this economy that we're in and and definitely would love to talk a a bit about some of the portfolio companies that you're you're excited about um but sort of any any trends or or insights sort of as you as you as we get ready to head into 2023 yeah it is the season for people to pontificate their predictions right yeah um you know, I think that there's look, there's there's a lot going on in the world, <laughs> um, in 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 so many different ways. Uh, but I think and so there's a lot of things to be mindful of in 2023. I think we'll see some some challenging things. Um, but I also think that also in the world of challenge, the, there's a lot of exciting things. And I think you know, I think 2023 from a year of early stage seed stage startups in the b2b software world i think it's going to be an incredible year so we we are extremely bullish on um you know actively investing in the companies that are getting started next year um you know particularly in the areas that we invest in in the world of b2b software i think that um you know i think this environment's not for the faint of heart so i think the founders who are going out in this ecosystem really know their stuff and have a reason to 
have a right to an opinion on the problem that they're solving. I think they'll be particularly problem oriented and um, will capitalize on some of the the things going on in terms of market dislocations and disruptions. Um, you know, there's great talent available uh, right now or, or increasingly available. And so I think it's a good talent market for, for startup for, for startups. Um, and I think there's a whole wealth of opportunity that's being unlocked. I mean, there's so much talk about GPT-3 and what's going on in the world of generative AI. But I think that next year we'll see a lot of companies figure out, um, particularly vertical SaaS companies, figure out the, the role, you know, the role that machine learning should play in their fundamental software systems and, and across their tech stack. So I think next year will be a breakout year in that place. It's an area that we're spending a lot of time on, um, both in sort of our future of work theses and our vertical SaaS. So things like insurance or supply chain or commerce enablement or you know, construction, whatever it might be, digital health in particular. Um, I think we're gonna, just going to see a lot of rapid advancements in, in how and where machine learning gets applied and what are the implications for how that changes how work gets done. Um, mm -hmm. So that's an investment theme that, that we're excited about. Um, can I, can you know, I comment we, on that But just before yeah. you... Yeah, so th I think that's very interesting insight. And there's sort of an analogy that comes to mind um, of sort of the time we're in and sort of the end of the tw 2000s. And sort of like mm -hmm. coming up, like in, I, I think it's, you know, I think you referenced PitchBook too in the questionnaire, but I, I think it might be PitchBook, but there's some the data around the amount of successful startups that were born in like 2007, eight, nine and thrived in the 2010s. I think mm -hmm. we're in a similar period, like companies that provide like really important, like business utility in the next, certainly in the next year, there's going to be a lot of winners. And actually like history would suggest there will be more winners than the average. Than like yeah. the sort of like annual average, so I think that yep. that's that's sort of interesting. And I, the machine learning makes sense also from the standpoint of companies need to be careful what they're investing in. They will invest in tools, technologies that can more efficiently deliver return, right? And I think a lot of machine learning based tools are sort of making elements of business more efficient, uh, <laughs> and ultimately there's like a job creation angle to this too when you talk about machine learning it's sort of like always the elephant in the room it's like oh is this eliminating jobs it's actually you know helping businesses grow and then the jobs to you know sustain that scaling business will will also grow and 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 you know begin to be different and complementary to the machine learning sort of technologies evolve so i don't know if you want to comment on that at all but i think it's it's a it's a needle we have to thread we meaning like the entrepreneurship innovation community as in terms of like what machine learning in particular based technologies actually mean to the future of work and what they don't mean in terms of just like shutting off job opportunities for people Totally. I think that's all said. And I think that that's, you know, I think there is a misperception by some around sort of what, what it can mean. I think of it as around, not to be generic, but using the word augmentation. So, you know, things that should be automated should be automated. And the things that don't uniquely need a human brain to be doing, you know, shouldn't be done by a human brain anymore, or, or hopefully in the short, in the near future. And that allows humans and their brain capacity, whether it's creativity, collaboration, things like that should be spent on, on their time should be spent on that. Yeah. Um, at least in the knowledge worker, you know, context, I think there's, there's, there's a lot that we can talk about in different types of work. So I, I, I don't think it should be blanketed. That's what I also think that, you know, another theme that we spend time on is thinking about the deskless workforce. So, so much mm -hmm. software has been built for those of us who sit behind a computer all day. Um, 
but you know, 80% of the, the world's population does not sit behind a computer all the time and they're on, on the go doing whatever it is that they're doing. And so I think there's also tons of room for innovation to have those jobs be enhanced and um, improved through software. Um, and some of that might be mobile first software. So I think, um, you know, thematically that's, that's another area, you know, my partners, um, my partner Rich spends a lot of time in the Web3 infrastructure space. I think that's going to be interesting next year, mm-hmm. um, which I think will still be difficult. But I actually think some of the the, the core pieces of that um, ecosystem are still to, yet to be built. So I think we'll see some fundamental things be built and not just, I think, having being able to weed through the noise of everything that we saw in 2021, 2022 in that space. Um, we're excited for for going back to kind of the picks and shovels, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um and then my, you know, my partner, Chris, spends a lot of time in the world of fintech infrastructure. And I think we're excited about a lot of the stuff going on there as well. So um, overall, look, we think next year is going to be a great time for seed stage investing. Um, and, uh, we're, you know, those I give a view on some of the, the themes that we're particularly excited about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the ecosystem will be challenging in certain ways as well. I do think... Um, you know, until interest rates drop and and um, I think we'll still face some challenges, particularly with later stage investing. I think the IPO markets will stay closed for a couple of years. I think the result of that is we'll see more private M&A transactions as a potential outcomes um, for these later stage companies, whether it's private on private or private equity mm-hmm. focused. Um, is where, you know, I think we'll see more of that activity, particularly in the second half of, of 2023. Um yeah, I think that we are expecting a, a difficult fundraising environment, particularly sort of the series B, C, and D for for some of our for later stage companies. But that said, there's a lot of capital out there, so I do think there will be a flight to quality. I think there's 290 billion of of dry powder sitting out there, so I think you know the companies that are really focused on business fundamentals and efficient growth and smart cash management and things like that, and who are solving real problems and have figured out how to do it mm-hmm. scalably and repeatedly, I think they will be able to raise. So I think we'll kind of see a blend of some crazy raises, um, mm-hmm. still wild valuations for those companies that have sort of really knocked it out of the park on all of those, you know, building real fundamental businesses. And then, um, and then I think we'll probably see some flat rounds, probably some down rounds, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think this is a correction that probably needed to happen. And, and ultimately, I think my hope is that 2023 is the first year of kind of a new normal, if you will, mm-hmm. kind of. 2019 normal, um, but the new version of it, and I think that that hopefully can can be stabilizing on certain things as well. Yeah, grounded in in a, in a bit more reality, and I think like Web three is sort of like a microcosm for that like grander macro economic reality the world will hopefully experience in 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 positive ways in 2023. But I, I, the picks and shovels analogy definitely, I think sits well with me and it makes a lot of sense in terms of like where web three in particular is going just in general, like, um, sort of kind of bleeding edge technologies that are just utility focused and like, like now problems and now efficiencies are going to thrive, which always will. But I think there, there has been a bit of, um, there, there's been a, a number of, um, companies on futures, you know, greater longer term futures that have raised that have maybe, you know, that needed a correction, as as you put it. Um, and I do like, I like the term deskless workforce. And I'm going to start borrowing that. I like that a lot because I think it's a really appropriate way to talk about like the majority of people that aren't behind a desk. And I actually, I do, a, I do a future of work column at built in. Um, yeah. And, and this is very that that immediately clicks on a lot of levels for me that 
we can go over on another day. Um, I'm so sure. I'm, well, I, I got to give credit to Emergence Capital yeah. now. I've collaborated with their team over there cool. on, on some of their thesis work. But um, anyway, yeah. yeah, it's a it's an important theme that I don't think gets enough attention. Yeah, I think it needs so, more. I might even write about it. Um, so, and and who 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 are you giving the shout out for 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 coming up with that? Um, for the folks over at Emergence Capital. Emergence. Okay. Cool. Nice. Do they have some material on that to to consume? Yeah, right, they have a blog post. They've done some good data. They've done some good research on it. So I'm, I can send it to you as a follow up if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love I'd love to read that. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Cool. And then you mentioned earlier uh, Goldcast, right? Which is the I think a company you're invested in and also utilized to bring the you know the to activate the core community virtually. But just any other companies that you want to sort of speak to that you're particularly bullish on right now or just have some interesting happenings kind of heading into the new year? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton that I could speak to. I, you know, with a lot of exciting stuff in our portfolio. I think, you know, Goldcast we're extremely excited about in Boston based. Um, and they're building essentially sort of a B2B events marketing platform that allows event marketers to hold hybrid events and um, in a very unique way that allows them to connect all their data and orchestrate it with all of their marketing tech stack mm-hmm. um, and just growing incredibly fast and, and very good and thoughtful team of builders. Um, so that's one that, you know, we were proud to be part of their first institutional round back in 2020. They came out of Harvard ecosystem, HBS, um, and been proud, proud backers along the way. Um, you know, another company that I joke that if I didn't love my job so much, I would want to go work there is uh, a company called Hi Marley, mm-hmm. which is um, an intelligent communication platform for insurance. Uh, so think of it as, you know, the communication layer between an insurance carrier and the end policyholder. So you and I, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm excited about this company because uh, several different things. It's, it's an absolutely massive market. So if you think about the world of insurance, you know, it's over an $8 billion market. And what this company is well positioned to do over time is sort of own every communication touch point between mm-hmm. the customer and, and an insurance carrier. Um uh, you know, they started with two-way texting for claims adjustments. You know, tree falls on your car, you're able to text with your carrier um, to resolve it and allows carriers to resolve it much faster. So it's just an absolutely massive you know, market opportunity. They're doing incredibly well, capturing some of the top carriers in the country. Um, and Boston-based, so their, their headquarters mm-hmm. here, most of their team is here. They're very bullish on building in Boston. I think it's kind of a cool example of Boston has a whole bunch of industries that, you know, been born here in many ways, like insurance and a lot of financial insur- mm-hmm. uh, financial yeah. services. You know, we see it in security, a lot of MarTech, a lot of commerce, you know, think about yeah. the Indeca mafia and everything that they're going to do. So I think it's just an example to me of sort of the digital transformation of some of these older industries that actually have very, very long roots here in Boston yeah. um, and are evolving over time. So there's an incredible team. They're doing really well. And um and they're just really good humans in a very strong culture. So that's one that I remain very excited about. Um, you know, I'd put Salsify in that category as well, sort of again, Indica Mafia sort of changing the way that commerce gets deployed. Um, they just actually won the Nevis of the Tech Company of the Year. So it's again a very strong culture um and a company that's on its way to doing that. You know, it's already done massive things. It's it's a big company now. And and you know, I think we're gonna continue to see exciting things coming out of that in the road ahead. Um you know, another company we're very bullish on again came out of the Harvard MIT ecosystem is a company called Tetra Science, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially 
um, you know, the R&D cloud for life sciences. So think about um, almost like the snowflake for for life sciences, but they're actually just starting life sciences, but they can be applied to a lot of different verticals. But it's, um, anyway, it's an incredibly important company, not a lot of competition, absolute massive, massive market. Um, they're growing extremely fast. And, um, you know, the, the CEO there is just, and one of a kind entrepreneur. He he's not afraid to take the hill. He's a great great manager, great vision visionary, and um, you know, he's just sometimes you talk about founders who you just want to hold on to their superpower cape. You know, they're superheroes, and you're holding on to their cape flying behind them. Yeah, um, it's drafted kind of right a, off them. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like you can keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but they're doing awesome things and um, continue to grow and hire and even in this environment. But I think um, they've signed some incredibly impressive customers. And and so anyway, so those are some of the later stage yeah. ones, a bunch of, of early stage ones that we're, we're really excited about as well. Um, happy to spend more time on those if that's useful. Uh, some are hiring. Um, so I know that there's a lot of people thinking about their next opportunity, you know, check out our, our website uh, for underscore portfolio hiring. We have all the job postings there. Um, but there's some companies that uh, are doing really very big things, whether it's in digital health, hybrid infrastructure, a company called Darby. Um, there's one called Herald, which is building the the API infrastructure for small commercial insurance. Um, and uh, it's just, again, great, great humans building big things in big markets. That's where yeah. we spend our time and what we get excited about. So. That's great. It, you're um, you're hitting on like and reminding me of the theme of a couple of the analyst reports. We've only done a couple the last couple of years, and certainly would like to find the reason, like get get the right group of sort of folks together to to put resources toward more. But this idea of like technologies hiding in plain sight that are born out of Boston, mm. that are having like that are driving like global industry, and like as an example in the robotics in general, yeah. big industry here, in part because of machine learning. And sort of, um, we we started looking at that sector. We kind of double clicked into microlocation robotics. Mm -hmm. And some of the biggest advances that exist today, like companies like Humatics that are out of Boston, that are providing more advanced technologies for the New York City, um, you know, subway system and subway mm -hmm. systems around the world to, again, augment and, and support humans and give more efficient, rapid data, accurate data and insights for humans to make decisions to manage transit systems, right? That that global trend is being driven by companies out of Boston. And there's you go you go in digital health, you go in these, you go in cybersecurity. Uh, in cybersecurity we did we did a report on it, it kind of has an interesting sort of Boston cybersecurity market also has like strong connections to Israel, which you can't, you can't ignore either, which are, which are interesting, yeah. but you have these, these mult just num numerous pockets of innovation from Boston that are kind of hiding in plain sight, driving, driving global innovation. So that's a bit of a, I'd say we're still early on that initiative, like VCL and just like, and, and but bringing to light those markets and having yeah. more like analyst reports like like qualitative deep dive reports on those markets and then sort of aligning with like we, we aligned on the micro location robotics report with TechCrunch, and they were like yeah we actually haven't reported on this and that's interesting so some of that work yielded things that's out in awesome. TechCrunch. so it's an interesting sort of formula for boston yeah. that does it that has that punches a i'd say 
below its weight in terms of media attention relative to like VC dollars and, and entrepreneurs like doing great things. And so it's, it's, it's finding these like awareness playbooks um, to raise these issues, like you know, well beyond what we're doing here on Boston Speaks Up. I think that's, you know, as we're, as we're reaching towards, you know, towards the end of this lovely interview, it's, that's some of the stuff that I look forward to, like, you know, next time I visit the office and I hang out with, with, with your team, I think those are the things that I'm excited about. And I appreciate and acknowledge, and I'm grateful at the top of this call, you, you know, appreciating me and expressing gratitude for like this storytelling endeavor, um, which has been going strong for a few years. And I'm just looking forward to the additional storytelling endeavors that folks like uh, a core community can be a part of like, you know, stoking into existence in the world and just continuing to raise the profiles of all these interesting companies out of Boston. Yeah, well, I'm very excited for any and all of those initiatives. It's very needed. I love to hear that you're already doing some of those. And um, as I said, I think of, of a voice for, I forget the word you just used, sort of the something in plain sight, technology in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think that's very true. And, and I think uh, the role that you're playing in trying to help make it in more plain sight, less hidden is yeah. uh, very needed. There's a lot of really smart people, really innovative technology happening in a six mile radius. Yeah. And that's pretty unique. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere else in the world quite like it from that yeah. concentration of, of people in tech. So um, I think part of it is, is sharing that with the, with the world. Um, anyway, I was excited. Totally. To be Why we like doing what yeah. we're doing, where we're doing it. Absolutely. And, and you're already in alignment with like a bunch of the hiding in plain sight. Like I, I call it the hiding in plain sight committee, like Ari glance at New England venture capital association where you're, you know, uh, you know, board director. Um, yeah. I've sat down with him and, and then Jesse Bardo at, at Silicon Valley bank. Like that, it's something yeah. that there's a lot, there's really good, strong alignment um, across the board there. So yeah, looking forward to, like seeing how what more we can do as time goes on um as we sort of reach the crescendo here we got to do this is yeah. something that my podcast coordinator came up with that has been popular for bosses speaks up over the past year but it's just sort of like a challenge that you have for listeners um yeah. sort of you know and which is what good timing because it is new year it's about to be new year's resolution time yeah yeah so um, I love that you're asking this question. I'm curious whatever you should sort of compile them yeah. all. Maybe that's yeah. going to be your end of year, yeah. end of year challenge for New Year's resolution. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, mine would be a simple one, which is make sure I'm a believer in um, carving out time for old friends. Yeah. And I think, you know, human connection and relationships. And as I started with this call, people is everything mm -hmm. to me. People first, mm -hmm. people matter the most. And so whether it's family, but I think in particular, um, friends are very, very important. And it's easy when you're um, got a lot going on in life, as we share. I've got three kids under five. We're running a venture <laughs> firm. There's a macroeconomic meltdown. There's plenty of reasons why I should be spending my time doing other things versus calling my, my oldest and dearest friends. But I have found that particularly over the last three years, those are the things that keep me sane and happy and humble and um, just a reminder of how valuable those connections can be. So carving out time for it, no matter what's going on in your life, um, I highly recommend it from my mental health and appreciation yeah. perspective. So I would be make time for old friends. I love it. Make time for old friends. I'll tell you one of my favorite ones to date that I know you'll appreciate based on that answer. And then I got to ask you one follow-up question, but um, be more present with people. And, and it's some, it's one that it, it, Deirdre Sartorelli, she used to run the um, Angle Center for Entrepreneurship at mm -hmm. Endicott College. And she she since retired, actually, after I interviewed her. I love it. I love it because 
I think about it all the time. I think about it when I'm with my wife and my daughter and like the importance of like, I'm holding up my phone to you that you can see right now, like not being on my phone, being present. I've become the phone bowl guy when we get together with friends. And actually we have some common connections uh, to Winthrop. Like we'll be, we were in Winthrop hanging out with friends for, um, for a buddy's birthday party a couple weekends ago. And I noticed four or five people on their phones and I got the bowl out. I was like, phones in the bowl. It's Saturday it. night. Like, yeah. does anyone have anything important you need your phone for? Otherwise, like put it in this bowl. But being present with people, I think is I love it. Is huge. And to your point about just people and, and people and human first. It's like we can't and in Deirdre just like she's she was very eloquent about it, but just she had seen over time a lot a lot a, a, a lessening presence from the people she was corresponding with who had you know because we have we're so connected digitally and i think that to me is you know it, it it's similar and it's like be, be and then be go connect with your old friends and then give them your attention like be present with yeah. them don't be multitasking right exactly yeah. yeah and then i guess my follow-up question to you is how do you do it you have three <laughs> kids under five uh, you must have a, I mean, you must have a great partnership with your husband going like, but yeah, just, you know, how, 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 how is that? <laughs> I mean, it's total chaos, but it's really fun. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I've been getting asked this question a lot. So, <laughs> well, because you impressively, I mean, you pull it off quite well, but it's three kids <laughs> under five is particularly, um, it's a massive responsibility. And so, yeah, just any, any tips and tricks or best practices from your own, um, you know, partnership with your husband on how you, how you manage it and sort of, you know, cover for each other and just make it all work. Yeah. I think, um, I don't have any golden answers. I think, you know, one is I'm very lucky. I do have an amazing partner, my husband, who's also in tech. He's a product leader at a digital health startup. So, um, we're empathetic to each other, I think, but also it's not, it's not, not stressful. Um, but he's an amazing partner and, and we just started, we've tried to remember that we're on the same team. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the kids are being a big pain, it's, you know, remember the way you got to lock arms and be on the same team. Yeah. Um, so that's very helpful. Uh, I also believe the whole saying of like, it takes a village. Um, I really do think it takes a village. And so again, it goes back to the community model. Mm -hmm. um, we're very lucky to have lots of family in the area um, and amazing support. So that and there's no way I'd be able to do this without without that. Even just last week, my brother lives nearby. He's you know, 30 years old and a single guy. And my husband and I had like a travel snafu. We were both had work travel and my brother had to take my kids <laughs> to drop off, you know? And he was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I'd never been to a preschool drop off before. Right. But he, when he's and there's a lot of home, rules with it. There's a lot there's of, a lot of <laughs> rules. I'm like, you gotta put the shoes here and then you gotta do yep. this. And like, yeah. um, and he was just amazing and stepped in. I literally texted him at 11 PM and like, Oh my God, it's raining and I can't do this. Can you help? Um, yeah. Anyway, so it takes a village. So, so yeah. get your village is is a big thing. And then I think the third thing I think about is just self forgiveness. I've learned yeah. anything in parenting. It's I'm gonna get some stuff right. I'm gonna get some stuff wrong. Um, I'm trying my best. And um, you know, everybody who has kids older than mine says, you know, be present and enjoy it. So I'm trying to, even when all three of them are sick and screaming at each other, you know, trying yeah. to find the things to appreciate and enjoy about the stage that they're at um, yeah. because it'll go fast. And even if it feels like a lot, it is, I just take a deep breath, try to try to value what I can and, and be kind to myself and everybody else around me about it. We're just, everybody's just yeah. trying to put one foot in front of the other. So that's, exactly. that's all I got. Cool. <laughs> no I like job. it. Yeah. I mean, what I like when we have those moments where like, I mean, this morning was a morning where our daughter just like refused to put clothes on for school. 
Um, yeah. I ultimately was able, like, my wife's like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I just mentioned, you know, we're having a lot of conversations with Santa this week. So that's certainly a useful, useful talking point with, with Very kids useful. these days. But yeah, it's, it's, a, <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone I talk, like I have some great, I think mentors are an important part of being successful. I have some great mentors in my life and, um, that their kids are much older and they're able to say to me, like, listen, this is going to go by so fast just enjoy it. And I, I'm always, I sometimes am, am reminding myself of that at the challenging moments because totally. I'm like, Oh, like I gotta, like, you don't want, you want to be great in these challenging moments because there's so much of this that's beautiful and it's all going to go by so quickly. And you don't want to, I don't want to, you don't want to cast a shadow over it by, you know, getting frustrated and, and whatnot. So that's what, that's what I was telling myself this morning when, uh, we spent about 20 minutes getting ready for school and we still just made it on time. So oh, yeah, I'm always <laughs> the last one to drop off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a little bit of a buffer zone there. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Lily, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being so present with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. And and I love the range of topics and um, you know, again, thank you for what you're doing for the ecosystem. So I appreciate you having me and, and representing underscore and, and we're excited to continue to collaborate. Amazing. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I'll have to get in the new year. That's definitely on my like resolutions list is to get, is to talk about connecting with old friends. Like underscore has been, we've been old friends since I moved we back in 2018 and yeah, really. I, haven't been, I haven't been by the office since the pandemic. So like, that's oh, all, it, I got to reconnect with, with people more in the flesh. So I'll have to come by at some point. Uh, but in the meantime, we're heading, heading into the holidays. Have a great holiday break. Um, I wish you and your family all the best. And looking forward to sharing this with the community at the start of the new year. Likewise. Well, thank you. Happy holidays to you. Happy new year. And stay safe and healthy. And, and thanks for having me. Thanks, Lily. Take care. Bye. All right. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.